Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. Now, this week's film was chosen by our supporting cast over on Patreon, where you can support us if you wish and help keep the mics on here at FOF HQ. And we're thankful for every single one of our supporting cast members who does vote in the Patreon pick, because it's always an interesting vote. So, Matt, what did the patrons pick for us this week? Well, Rob, it wasn't anything with swords and chivalry. It was, of course, 1956's Attack. Yes, it was. Yeah, there was... What was it to choose from? You selected, um, oh Christ, was it Secret School for Spies or something like that? School School for Secrets? Yep, School for Secrets. It, yeah, film, film about boffins in um, yep. doing a um, a raid to capture some German radar. Um, a War, which was a, a, Norwe- a Swedish or Norwegian film? Uh, Danish, Danish, Danish yeah. film. It was in the mm. right region. Um, and I chose Ironclad, which was a, a chivalry and swords film. But Attack, Ro- uh, Robert Aldrich's Attack from 1956 did win. So, Matt, how about you go into production first, then we'll go through the cast. Absolutely. So, as as we mentioned, it's a uh, Robert Aldrich film. Um, his previous war movie credits, um, of course, the biggest one out there is uh, Dirty Dozen in 1967. But prior to that, he'd been an assistant director on Bombardier in 1943. Uh, G.I. Joe in 1945. Uh, he'd done um, 10 Seconds to Hell in 1959. Uh, Angry Hills uh, in the same year. And of course, his last war film was uh, Too Late the Hero, which is one a lot of people have been asking us to cover for a while now, but we will get to it. Ugh, um, I'm not a fan. Rob's not a fan of that one. <laughs> not it's really. a bit of a wasted, it's a wasted cast, yeah, in my that's opinion. What it is. But yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, Produced by Aldrich, um, he was a, a bit of an independent filmmaker. 
for the period. Mm. Um, it was distributed by United Artists. Um, and interestingly, the film, the screenplay was written by uh, James Poe, who later went on to do The Bedford Incident in 1965, which is phenomenal. Mm. Um, and his only other credit that fits within the war movie genre is uh, Enola Gay, the, the Men, the Mission and the Atomic Bomb in 1980. Um, but Poe adapted this screenplay um, from a, it's always described as a failed Broadway um, Yeah, play. it is. Yeah. Um, 1954's Fragile Fox by Norman uh, Brooke. And that starred uh, Dane Clark as Costa. Uh, he was in uh, Action in the North Atlantic with Bogey. Oh, wow. And also uh, Destination Tokyo as well. Um, so he had a film career, but it, 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 in 1954, he was doing a Broadway um, mm. run. And the adaptation is, is it, it's interesting. It's a number of... Um, it's a two-act play, and there's four scene. There's four separate scenes where mm-hmm. they're all um, little character-based discussion. Sequences. Yeah, you can tell what scenes are riffed off the. Yeah, it's the play. it's Jenny's endish in that yes. they're always in somewhere chatting to one another, and it's very character-based, and we get that carried through into the film, mm. Sure, mm. which we'll talk about later on. I felt like they um, used the. Sorry, I felt like they used the, the scenes from the play when they're in the the house when they're in the basement and when they're yes. in the sort of CO, uh, the, the, the command point, sorry, what's it, what do you call it? Oh God. Command post. Yes. We're in there in there. And then all the more classic war movie scenes are like these bridging moments to get you to those scenes. That's how, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. how I, I saw so. it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, I looked at a playbill for the, um, for the original play. It has those four specific scenes that mm. anchor the film also anchored the play. Um, cinematography was by Joseph Birock, who had done Bombardier in 1943. In 1946, Rob, he did It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. Um, yeah. Merry Christmas, um, everybody. Sorry. <laughs> any excuse to do the Jimmy Stewart I love impression. That film. I love that It's film. a great movie. It's it, it's what everyone wants in a socialist Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> Too Late the Hero in 1970. He won an Oscar for um, Towering Inferno. Yeah. Um, he also did the cinematography for Blazing Saddles and Airplane, two of my favourite comedies. What a varied career. Of of that period. Um, yeah, I know, right? Um, but it's actually really quite nicely shot, this film. And there's mm. a lot of Dutch angles and nice close-up work. Establishing shots are interesting. Um, it, it's, it's tightly done and it works really nicely. Yes, it is. Um, apparently, it was shot... Um, in about 30, 32 days. Um, but before they did the shooting, they did something which wasn't always done. They did table reads. And yeah. Aldrich did this because he wanted changes to the script suggested before they got on set because he hated surprises and changes mm. while he was filming. Um, so they they did table reads for a couple of weeks um, and then they, they shot the film in 32 days um, on the back lots of Universal Studios and RKO Pathé. Um, in um, in rural California, uh, which doesn't, I mean, it's, it's not Spain, is it? I mean, we're, we're in another no, yeah, exactly. yeah, where yeah. there's no snow, um, not a lot of cloud, and it's it doesn't look like... It's not as egregious, though, as Battle of the Bulge. Because no, Battle yeah. of the Bulge is trying to be this big, massive blockbuster with everyone in it. 
Whereas this yes. is a character, really a character study with a World War II slap of paint on it. So I, I don't. It doesn't irk me as much. The fact you've mentioned there's no snow, I, I didn't once think in the whole movie where's the snow. But now you mention yeah. it, I'm like, oh god, yeah, there's no snow. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, it's uh, we've we've covered we've already covered the, the best Battle of yeah. the Bulge War movie, um, Battleground, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it, it's forgivable. It's it, as you said, it's a character piece, and that's mm. what the film basically is. Um, but it was shot for about seven hundred fifty, eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it's not a negligible budget. Modest. And then I think the most interesting aspect of the of the production is the we have that classic. The Department of Defense, U.S. Army, does not want to be involved with a picture that doesn't paint the U.S. Army and the U.S. military in the most positive of lights. Yep. Um, they outright refused to allow uh, the use of material, men, advisors, and they even they even prevented Aldrich from looking at um, U.S. Army single core footage. It's so harsh. So just circling back to what the the army had to say, um, apparently um, it was described as a very distasteful story and derogatory to army leadership during the combat, uh, including weak leadership, cowardice, and finally the murder of a company commander. Um, and there was a lot of back and forth. Uh, Aldrich tried to explain to the Department of Defense what he was trying to do um, and that it was more, it, it wasn't a stab at the army in general. It was a character study uh, and that kind of thing. Um, but um, Aldrich protested to Donald E. Barrich, the chief of the motion picture section pictorial branch of the Department of Defense in February 1956, stating that theatrically and film-wise, moral values are measured in comparatives. Strength is measured against weakness, heroics against cowardice. We feel strongly that our film is one of the is one that shows beyond question qualities of moral righteousness, leadership, courage heroism and above all personal integrity on the part of both enlisted men and officers of the army mm. yeah that's a good argument like I, I can't see why i mean i can see why at the time because obviously you had you know the cold war was just starting to blossom as it would become as it would go mm. on so you don't want to have a film that shows your military being filled with cowards we don't want to besmirch the reputation yeah, of the I men mean, you, you've got that backdrop yeah. of all those big budget very pro department of defense u.s military like strategic air command yeah fighter command um not fighter command fighter pilot uh, and all those you know get pilot with john wayne yeah exactly that put the emphasis on very heroic figures working day in day out in US military branches and it's a very positive light. I and mean, this is completely different. Aldrich talks about in the same letter, he talks about how he wants to compare the good with the bad, and you can't show a good character without having it contrast against bad ones. Yeah, it's just classic filmmaking as well, mm. and, and how you do character pieces. So I can get why the the, the military um industrial machine wasn't keen. But yeah. I also can sort of not understand why they wouldn't you can you can supply weapons and tanks to a movie without caring about its plot and its themes you know you you, you well, can I, I, it's an odd one isn't it i never I, I don't quite get it was the same with um men men, men in war men in they war, wouldn't yeah. provide it either and that is a much 
more pragmatic look at the US military. Yeah, true. Than this, I, I would say. Is. Yeah. No, I think um, you're right. It I think maybe people just hadn't they hadn't read the script properly. Or maybe they weren't. Maybe, I mean maybe that's you know. the case. I suppose the the similarity between this film and, and Men at War is they they both have complex characters and it isn't black and white. No. So it's yeah. it's kind of they're they're putting characters against one another and they're at loggerheads mm. to such a degree that it becomes, you know, untenable. Whereas in other films of the period they'll have that they'll have a little bit of friction, but it'll it'll be overcome. I don't think this movie really ended before we move on. I don't think this movie is hurt by the lack of involvement by the no. American powers no, powers that be. Not, I don't no. really see an issue with it and, and that'll become apparent in the alley tally really i think so i mean should we move on to cast yeah absolutely so the cast this week and i've um made a little um subtitle for the cast um section this week i've called it the academy awards slash combat club and that will become apparent as we move along so uh, leading the picture the star man is jack palance playing uh, lieutenant joe costa now he was a, he's a u.s actor Born to Ukrainian parents, he served in the United States Army Air Force in the Second World War. He was supposedly have had to have facial recognition, uh, facial reconstructive surgery after bailing from a B-24 Liberator on a training exercise. Um, and the, that this was said to have given him those distinct features like the chiseled cheekbones, the deep set eyes um, that we know Jack Palance for. But when he died, he was quoted to have said this about the rumours. Uh, Studio press agents make up anything they want to and reporters go along with it. One flat, one hack created the legend that I had been blown up in an air crash during the war and my face had to be put back together by way of plastic surgery. If it is a bionic face, why did they not do a better job of it? And obviously Palance, you know, he plays tough guys and villains uh, and he was having an accolade filled time in the 50s. Um, after having been an actor on Broadway, his debut role in Panic in the Streets in 1951, he starred in Holes of Montezuma in 51, directed by Lewis Milestone, no less. In his third feature role, he was nominated for an Academy Award of Best Supporting uh, Actor alongside Joan Crawford in Southern, in Southern Fear. Then the following year, he gained another nomination in the same category in the Alan, Alan Ladd-led Western Shane. Um, and then mm -hmm. he'd have to wait 40 years for an Oscar win, um, which he'd finally get for playing Curly Washburn in 1991 City Slickers. Um, his, yeah, I know, right? Crazy. Um, in his other war movie roles, uh, apart, apart from Attack, uh, is in 1960's Austerlitz, uh, about Napoleon's um, victory at Austerlitz in 1805. Um, oh. He was Raza in 1990. In 1966's The Professionals. That, that's a war-western hybrid. I, I do think that is relevant. Um, a couple of spaghetti oh, war. God. Yeah, it's a great film. Uh, along, uh, Lee Marvin's in that one as well, so there's a little connection. Amber yeah. uh, Lancaster. Amber Lancaster, yeah. A couple of spaghetti western, sorry, a couple of spaghetti war films in the late sixties. He was in a bullet for Rommel, um, which I own an original Belgian poster for because I like the artwork. Um, <laughs> Legion <laughs> and Legion of the Damned in nineteen sixty nine, and he also I didn't know this, but he played Fidel Castro in nineteen sixty nine. Shay, quite indeed. Okay. I can see it. Okay. It's, it's in, How we like didn't a... get another nomination for this, I don't. Know. <laughs> it's it's mad, right? It's absolutely crazy. So this is. So from here on out, I think this is where the, the my Academy Award Combat Club will come apparent. 
So we have Eddie Albert, uh, second billing. He plays uh, the cowardly Captain Erskine Cooney. And he was a two-time Academy Award nominee for Roman Holiday in 1954. And then in 1973 for The Heartbreak Kid. And his first big break came in a radio series called The Honeymooners. And then after this, he was offered a film contract with MGM. But he secretly worked before the war broke out. He secretly worked for U.S. intelligence, taking photos of U-boats in Mexico. Then in 1942, he enlisted into the U.S. Coast Guard. And in 1943, he transferred to the U.S. Naval Reserve as a lieutenant. But And then he received a Bronze Star with Combat V for his actions during the Battle of Tarawa in November 1943. Acting as a coxswain of a landing craft, he rescued 47 Marines who had become stranded on shore. Uh, off the shore and he helped save 30 more were under Japanese machine gun fire. I mean, absolutely inc- incredible. Wow. And by the time the uh, attack came around, he was aged 50. I mean, you wouldn't guess it from his on-screen No, actually looks so appearance. good, he? His age. Mm. Passed for late 30s. Um, he starred in a couple of war films during the earlier part of his career, appearing in 1942's Eagle Squadron and 1943's Bombardier that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and his post-war film roles included Orders to Kill in 1958. You're in the Navy now. Uh, he was Colonel Thompson in The Longest Day. And he also appeared in the TV series Combat in Series 2, Episode 7, called Doughboy, where he plays an American soldier who is still fighting the First World War. Wow. OK, that sounds interesting. I know. Yes, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> and then we have Lee Marvin. He needs, he needs no introduction. He plays Lieutenant Colonel Clyde Bartlett. Um, we obviously know Lee Marvin on the show from Dirty Dozen and its sequel. Um, and, you know, he was an Aldrich staple. However, the, um, the role is an interesting one because he plays an officer who's a manipulator and it's over the rough and tumble image of Reisman in Dirty Dozen. Filmed um, in the year that he would be cast as the lead in the TV series M Squad, which was a, a hard-hitting cop drama. Um, and that propelled him into being a huge star in the 1960s. Other war films include The Big Red One, Shout the Devil, Hell in the Pacific, Sergeant Riker and the Delta Force. I think we've mentioned this before in our Dirty Dozen roundup. Um, and like Eddie Albert, Marvin also starred in an episode of Combat in Series 2, Episode 1, called The Brida Chalon as Sergeant Turk. And I did, yeah. watch, I did start watching it um, earlier today. And it's, I just think it's weird that you have Rick Moreau. And in the, obviously these are established stars by Season 2. Um, and they already were going in. But I think it's weird that you have a guest who is arguably much bigger and like no in notoriety than any of the cast. It's, it's mad I love it when me. that happens. I love it. It's great. Um, and he's just playing like a pure Marvin character, a proper hard ass. It's very funny. Um, it's a good episode. And then we have William Smithers playing Lieutenant Harry Woodruff. And Smithers is perhaps best known for his role as Jeremy Wendell in Dallas. Um, but he also appeared as Warden Barot in 1973's Papillon and um, a boatload of US TV credits, including Combat again in Series 3, Episode 27, uh, called Cry the Ruins of Lieutenant Marks. Then we have Robert Strauss uh, of PFC Bernstein. Uh, he's a New York-born actor, started his career in, cl- in classics, um, working on Broadway and Shakespeare productions. Um his best known period of, of being a, a movie star was probably in the 50s. He gained an Academy Award nomination in 1953 for his supporting role in Stalag 17 alongside William Holden and Don Taylor. His other war movie work included roles in the musical, war musical hybrid Jumping Jacks in 1942. That was a bit of a weird, like, parachute okay. one. Yeah. 
Act of Love in 53, The Bridge of Tokoree in 1954, Wake Ooh, Me When It's yeah. Over in 1960, and then the last time I saw Archie in 1961. All of his sort of war movies, apart from this and Tokoree, he's he's in like these lighter sort of war movies. Mm, yeah, um, which there's a definite subgenre there. And we've kind yeah. of neglected those. Like um... We have, but we should get onto them. Yeah, we, yeah, there's a few. There's like there's that one with Cary Grant where the submarine's pink. Yeah, oh uh, yeah. Operation Petticoat is <laughs> Operation it? Petticoat. Yeah, with, that um, one. Yeah. Yeah, I I I like that one. That <laughs> we'll, get off. we'll get there. We'll get there. There's plenty yeah, of time. Can, there's put there's a lot of time. Have no fear. We'll move this for years. Exactly. <laughs> we have Buddy Ebsen as uh Tar Sergeant Tolliver, and he's probably best known again for playing. Jed Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies in the 60s and early 70s. And I thought it was interesting. He was originally cast as a scarecrow in Wizard of Oz, but then he switched to the Tin Man. But then his role was recast to Jack Haley because Ebsen became ill during filming because of the aluminium dust they use as part of the makeup. And Oh, wow. And MGM covered it up for a few years. Oh, yeah. Aluminium poisoning on the set of... I know. <laughs> and he had breathing issues for the rest of his career in life. Wow. Um, but he served as the, in the U.S. Coast Guard in the Second World War. Um, his other what episode of combat was he? He wasn't actually. Oh. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the few ones <laughs> that wasn't. Other war work includes uh, a role in the 1941 pre-Pearl Harbor um, war film called Parachute Battalion, and Between oh, Heaven yeah. and Hell in 1956. Mm. Yeah, and then we have John Shepard as Colonel Jackson. Um, he's the guy that jumps to queue for coffee. Uh, he played. Paul Martin in the 1950 Lassie series, as well as TV roles in Hitchcock's Half Hour, uh, in the Hitchcock Half Hour, not Hitchcock's Half Hour, the <laughs> the British comedy <laughs> series. Very different. The Alfred Hitchcock. Hancock's, Hancock's Half Hour, yeah. <laughs> I've written Alfred, Hicks, Alfred Hitchcock's Half Hour here with my notes <laughs> not realised. <laughs> Staying in. And in the early 60s. Uh, and then in the 50s, he appeared in, and I didn't even know this existed, and I thought it would be funny to mention it. Warner Brothers produced a Casablanca TV show. What? They spun what? it off. I don't know. I don't know how that came about or what it was like. Not Who played uh, Rick? Not Del Deep. I can't remember. You have to look it up. That's mad. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm going for it. There's not much, there isn't a great big cast, so I thought it would be interesting to just go for it. Yeah, might as well do all the They're all interesting uh, actors. Yeah. Uh, and then Jim. Goodwin as PFC Ricks. Uh, he's, I think he's the youngest member of the uh, the cast. He played Farrell in 1966's Star Trek series and uh, played the role of a dispatch rider in two episodes of Combat in series one and three. And then he appears in Perry Mason and a couple of episodes to the voyage of the bottom of the sea in the 1960s. A lot of TV credits. Uh, then we move on to Peter Van Eck as the SS captain. He was a German-born actor who moved to New York in the early 30s. He was an ardent anti-fascist. Recognisable yeah, face. Um, his best-known roles are in war films playing German officers. Um, his roles include appearances in Five Grades, The Cairo, The Desert Fox, Jump Into Hell, The Longest Day as Colonel, as Colonel Ocker, The Spy Coming from the Cold. Um, and his final role was actually as General Von Brock in uh, Bridget Remagen in 1969. Yeah, yeah. Which we reviewed a few weeks ago with Peter Callick adams and then uh, the final actor in my um, in my Academy Awards and Combat Club, <laughs> Stephen Gray, who plays Otto, the, the German NCO who's taken prisoner. He was a Hungarian actor um, who emigrated to the States. He appeared in a 1943 American training film called Resisting Enemy Interrogation. 
which also starred Van Eck as a, in an uncredited role as an officer. Um, and then he went on to become well known for his work in noir films in the 40s and 50s, such as Mask of Demetrius and the House on Telegraph Hill. Yeah. Cool. And there you go. That's the potted history of, of the main cast of Attack. And I, as we said before, we're going to keep coming back to it. I mean, the, the cast is incredible in this. You know, everyone's bringing their A game. Palance shows, comes out from being this supporting man. You know, he's a few leads, but not, you know, not any great shakes. And then he's in this and it's like, wow, here's Palance, you know, proper going for it. You know, Eddie Albert's going against type. Um, he's usually playing the sort of happy-go-lucky type, and he's not playing that in this. Marvin usually plays the tough guy, and he's not playing that in this. It, it's very interesting casting from Aldrich. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, it is. Did you mention uh, Richard Jekyll as well? Oh, no, God, I just completely, um, I completely yeah, skipped over Jekyll's Jekyll. Sorry. Another Aldrich um, Yeah, Aldrich I've got, staple. I've got, my little, I've got my little thing here for him. I'll just quickly tack it on. Um, yeah. So obviously Matt said Richard Jekyll there. He played Private Snowden. Um, I think we were, I think I got, I was laughing too much at the Hitchcock's half hour. <laughs> <laughs> so Jekyll was best known um, to fans of this show for his role as um, MP Sergeant Bowerin in Dirty Dozen, but he also starred in Gladdock Diary in 1943, uh, Wing in a Prayer, Battlegrounds in 1949, Sands of Iwo Jima in 49, Devil's Brigade, and in combat <laughs> in episode. Yes. In a series two episode called Gideon's Army, Sergeant Buxton, and uh, and he's a double one because he also received an Academy Award for Best Supporting Role for his work in the 1971 film A Great Nation. So there we are. Well, and he was also in Dirty Dozen 2. Yes, he was. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And Delta Force 2. But oh uh, God, Lee, yeah. Lee Marvin wasn't in that one. Well, because Lee Marvin had passed away, that's why. Sadly, uh, yes. I know, right. Um, so, moving on to the retro review, and this week it comes from Variety from December 31st, 1955, and I'll just read you the opening uh, paragraph. Attack presents a cowardly officer who is murdered by his men. Entire film from the play Fragile Frocks by Norman Brooks is treated with a hard realism that pays off in gutsy entertainment. It's a grim, extremely tough account of an infantry company during the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, brightly projected by the fine characterizations contributed by the cast. Hmm. Not a bad little review, punchy. Um, I I also have a review this week in a Ooh. in a strange it's a, turn it's of a events. Fox too, that is everyone. Um, we've got one from the New York Times, uh, September 1956, from Bosley Crowther. Uh, it says the attack on the town is breathtaking. The brief holding of the position is intense and the return of the lieutenant to take his vengeance on the cowardly captain is sheer agony. Indeed, the completion of the drama is so charged with personal anger, and the hate for the whole situation collapses in a flood of hysteria. Jack Palance, who is lean and impressive as the lieutenant in the midst of the attack, becomes a tattered, tormented monster when he returns to destroy the man he hates. And Eddie Albert, as the captain, becomes a wild-eyed, a wide, a wild-eyed, gibbering maniac. Mr. Albert is uncomfortably credible, but he and the rest of the company go haywire at the end. Even so, this is a stark, disquieting picture. Yeah. yeah that's one is. of my, that's one of the best written reviews that I've I've come across in a I while. Think we've I, had I, on I, the pod, to be yeah, fair. It's, it's a cracker that one. The very I'm short, to include that one. very short and sweet 50s copy when we do these. It's just like, gotta get this out to the editor in between cigarettes and 
wine yeah you know it just kind of feels <laughs> but then you get something like that it's quite commonly written um i like yeah it's very good so moving on to the one word reviews they're back this week i think they've had a couple of weeks off um so we go with the london ic says friction paul o'brien goes with dark martin collins says pressure rubber goes with daddy exclamation mark ian gory says gritty uh, philip blood goes with political Mm. Uh, Brian Williams goes with controversial David Reese jones goes with crushing With a little emoji of an arm Which I thought was quite funny um, And David Current just goes with palance Yeah, that, that scene with the arm and the tank yeah. it rem- I just thought of <laughs> thought of Shaun of the Dead I mean, He's got an arm off But it does lead to one of the best lines of the film I never knew a man could bleed so much Yeah yeah it's great we'll get onto that later because it's just such it's such a great great sequence um ali tally let's go ali tally it's time for ali tally on fighting on film i mean it's the usual fare um we've got that classic we need uniforms, get them from the studio, um, like costume cupboard where it's original style helms. Um, yeah. um, They're not as black, bad as that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then they black are. Black <laughs> SS uniforms. Um, yeah. But at least we've got some um, K98Ks rather than Gewehr 98s, yeah, uh, which is often, are often featured. Um, very prominent Maxim MG08. Um, I think that's gas powered. Yeah, I I think all the machine guns in this are definitely because yeah, um, the belt the belt is someone's manipulating that belt when they have a little shot. I'm not sure it. anyone fires a live round in this film actually. Um, really? Yeah, because you know in the sequence well, even, at the even end, down to like individual weapons. Yeah, well, you know at the the end where they uh, they all put around it at spoilers Cooney's body. Yeah. Um, uh, none of those weapons cycle. So none of them are firing, bl- firing blanks. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. There might be a couple. I'm. I... No, interesting. Interesting. The Thompson. There might be some live fire with the Thompson. I think as he's running in to the town. Um, but there's not a lot of there's not a lot of set piece no, gunfight action. It really it's not that isn't. kind of film. No, um, it's not. The Thompsons are 1928 A1. Uh, yeah. There's Garands and carbines, which. Sometimes you don't get the mix, actually. No, Sometimes it's all, all yeah. M1 carbines or all like M1 how, brands. I like how um, Costa starts with an M1 carbine, and then by the time we've got to where they are, he's got a Thompson. I like that. It's like a little progression, even if it's hmm. not meant. I like that. Um, there's a... Uh, the Germans are running an M2 60mm American mortar. Yep. In a couple of scenes. Uh, it's a very... Uh, especially the opening is a very empty battle sequence, a very empty battle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Failed, isn't it? Yes. Um, and, you know, you can, you can tell that they haven't got the budget or the access to equipment mm. that you could fill that space up with. It's they ambitious say, still. They say it's Akin and in my head I'm just going, the very fucking outskirts of Arkham. <laughs> yeah, it's about three miles outside. <laughs> yeah. um, the the little set piece in Ramel, or what's supposed to be Ramel, isn't bad. Um, quite good. Yeah, it's quite uh, quite a good little set on the back lot there. When we do say um, we're at Ryan, we have to we have to compare Ramel. <laughs> Ramel um, or Bumville or Fumville or some such place. Sorry. <laughs> um, what else do we got? Have we got? Uh, oh, and the bazooka, of course. Um, yes. Would you want to go over the vehicles? Yeah, we'll come back to the bazooka. Yeah, because it's kind of. Well, I'll go for the I'll go for the uniforms as well. So we've got the yeah, absolutely. The M nineteen forty three jacket um, is quite prevalent throughout with the with the Americans wearing that. By this time in the war, they they had mainly switched over to m1943 uniforms but you, you always get a mix with the u.s army in the in the second world war so you've got men wearing like 36 pattern trousers uh, i think m43 boots in there as well um i think there was a i think i saw one tank jacket off in the in the middle distance and there's a nice little uh little mixture there and then we've got the winter clothing because it's uh, meant to be the winter so you've got you know thick scarves jeep hats uh gloves i i like that little personal touch i always something for me i winter troops in the second world war just look really cool there's something about them you know, if you look up the british army fighting in the uh, operation varsity everyone's got their gloves and jerkins there's something about that yeah, yeah. winterized soldier i quite like and moving on to the uh the, the, the vehicles uh, we've got german panzer mock-ups based ones based on a marmon harrington ctl3 and another's on an m5 light tank um, and apparently one was bought and rented um, and there's also American half tracks and Willis Jeeps uh, and a couple of juice and a half. So obviously the the lack of tanks is or accurate tanks is down to that not having that involvement by the, the US government um, uh, military industrial machine there. Um, and I, I think it I mean, it sort of hurts the picture because it would have been nice to have a panzer or it would have been nice to have a Sherman with a something a bit it. bigger than a. Yeah, yeah. it would have been OK, but it just. just <laughs> When they're far away, they don't look too bad. But when Palance, when Palance is attacking them at the end, like he could just lean up and drop that bomb. Yeah, in he the doesn't turret. actually have to climb on he the tank. Have, no, does he? they look a little, a little bit laughable, but they do the job. You know, I can understand with the. I think the it's the fact that they put that big, what is supposed to be an eighty-eight millimeter gun. Yeah, on, on it, it with yeah. the with the transit um, support up for most That's of it, it as well. They're doing and that. It it's meant to be a silly. king tiger, aren't they? Oh Whereas, god, and it, yeah, and it's the smallest American army tank possible. Yeah, like even yeah. it could have even been a half track. You know, it, they didn't have any artillery pieces well, like it, that. It yeah, any AFV. It, it, it could have been anything. You are right there. Um, and it does look a little bit janky, little but bit. it's forgivable. It's I'll forgive fine, him. isn't it? it? It's it, yeah. It's the wrong bloody tank, as Al would yeah, say. Yeah, always. Um, yeah, we have to edit in um, the leopard form. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, even if they'd had US Army support, it probably would have been like a, a like a, a passion if they were lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, or a chaffy. A chaffy, probably. probably. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it is what it is. It's fine. Um, so tell us about takes, the Suzuka. <laughs> yeah, he takes on the um, the Panzers with yeah. uh, with a bazooka, and it's actually it's an M9 bazooka, which is a post-war, um, right. slightly larger diameter. Uh, it's stubbier, isn't it? It looks. Yeah, it's a little bit shorter, a little bit right. fatter, um, and it's they've it's mocked me it up a little bazooka bit. Bazooka form. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short king. Um, what they've what they've done is they've added this odd carved like front grip to it. Yeah. Because the M1 and M1A had um like a, like a two grips, two pistol yeah, grips. Like a front grip, yeah. Um and that's that's obviously what they've tried to replicate because the M9 wasn't in service in, in 1944. Mm. Um and it, it looks a little bit weird with that carved wooden front grip to make it look like like an, an earlier version of it. Mm. Um, but nice to include a bazooka. Um, yeah, and it, it gets a couple of rounds off. He loads it himself uh, as well. It's quite cool. He does. You don't. I mean, you don't see him attaching the ignition wires. <laughs> he doesn't the quite have time to do that. Anything fine. like that? He's... That would have added to the tension if yeah. he started yeah. trying to wrap an ignition wire around some contacts. <laughs> Bless him. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that that about rounds it out for for the. Um, did I mention the MG08, the German MG08 that they yeah, have? Um, there's a yeah. there's a really cool um, Peter Van Eck has a really cool hip fire Lugacy where he takes out one of the Americans. That's the most running. nonchalant. Like, yeah, the radio <laughs> guy is running into the house, isn't he? And he it's just like a Western just, like, style. Just <laughs> leaning <laughs> on the door frame, having a smoke. It's like a ciggy. Like, <laughs> take him out. What's that? There was it was a thing. I this is gonna be this is a mad reference people would be like oh god he's off on his mind palace again but if you ever visited the national army museum before they had their restoration in like oh god how many years ago now they used to have these little vignette things they'd filmed um for the crimean war sequence and there was a bit where it's meant to be um they're fighting on a on a train on a like a defensive line in in the battle of um oh it's like Salah, not salamanca oh crikey one of the um, sebastopol Sebastopol, yeah, up there, mm. and one of the and the actors I forget the guy's name. I've met him a couple of times, but there was a little vignette, and it was like of a guy fighting in that little defensive trench system there, and he's talking about what he did. And at the end, he goes, "Oh, don't let that chap get too close." And he like sort of just nonchalantly fires his revolver. <laughs> and it always, <laughs> whenever I see someone do that now, it just reminds me of that. But that oh, that's chap someone. Yes, yeah. it's like that. But that's that mad reference there. You'll never. You, I can't even find those videos anymore. But you know, anyone at the NARM listening, I'd love to see them again. Um, but that's my man. That sounds like a, that sounds like a fourth special right there. <laughs> the um, <laughs> and then we can't we can't move on from the alley tally without dis- discussing the most alley piece of kit throughout the whole film, and that is Coney's secret jerry can stash of booze and ciggies. <laughs> so cool, isn't it? <laughs> um, and he, he, Lee Marvin's coming over to play poker. Yeah. Um, uh, Kel Clyde, um, and he goes under the bed, pulls out a jerry can. You're thinking, what's he doing with this jerry can? Pops it on the bed. He's talking to the uh, the adjutant while he's doing this. Mm-hmm. Flips open the, um, the jerry can, and in inside is a couple of bottles of, uh, of of whiskey and some packets of some cartons of cigarettes. 
and that's his little stash. I thought that was ace in it. A, a really ace little inclusion. It's so cool. I really like it. And the, you know, the whiskey becomes quite a, a, a mm-hmm. plot device towards the end. But it does, yeah, yeah, I, I do like. I like Chekhov's the, bourbon. Chekhov's bourbon. Yeah, <laughs> I like the, uh, the staging of the scenes as well. Everything is very uh, planned and methodical. It. And I think that the lack of budget helps these movies sometimes because you don't you you think more about what you don't have rather than thinking you can buy everything mm-hmm. and have it in one shot. But yeah, maybe we should move into favourite scenes. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So my favourite scene, uh, and it's uh, it stands out for me in the performance and the way it ends. So uh, it's Cooney's breakdown. So after the confrontation with Bartlett, as the Germans are attacking, um, Bartlett comes in and, and tells Cooney that you are going to hold this. I don't want any more foul-ups from you. you but you're a thorn in my side. He finally sees the man for who he is. He, he wanted to use him for his political gains, but now he realises this man is just a sap um, in his eyes. So... Bartlett strikes him and he tells him, oh, I hate you. And it's probably some of the most violent 50s acting that you could probably get in a movie <laughs> um, with Marvin without saying a swear, I think, because it, it's it, it rides <laughs> the line. Um, so uh, and then after Bartlett leaves, Harry takes the whiskey away from uh, Cooney, who's drinking to uh, sort of get some Dutch courage, I guess. And he says, don't you know all the answers? I don't know all the answers, but you're not going to find them in there. And then he asks Cooney if he really thinks he's going to find courage in a bottle. And he lambasts him as being a criminal, responsible for the deaths of men under his command. And they tussle over the bottle. Harry smashes it. And Cooney finally breaks. And he says he's scared. And he goes into the bunker and sees his slippers. And I'll read. I've got, I found the script. I've got the quotes. Um, and I'll read you the 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 breakdown. because so I think it's an amazing piece of writing. I won't, I won't act it, but I'll read it. He says, I'm scared. I'm scared of you. I'm scared of Bartlett. I'm scared. I'm scared of my father. My dad whooped me. He whooped me. I'm going to whoop some guts into you, boy. I'll make a man of you. I'm talking to you, boy. I'll make you a man. And I thought that someday, someday I'd wake up one morning and then I was 30 years old. And it's the regression of Cooney in that scene. You finally realise that he's only doing this to prove something to his father who Mm. hit him and that the, the trauma of conflict brings up childhood trauma. And it was just something that I wasn't, I just wasn't expecting it from a 50s movie, if I'm pretty honest with you. you know, I, I didn't think that they it would go into that, that realm. Um, and then after Harry's cowardice has finally overtaken him and he's inconsolable on his bed, and then you get Costa returning from the battlefield. And it's this, it's like a horror movie shot. I've got written down here, it's, it's as if the monster has finally broken in. And you get this crazed look on uh, Palance's face and he demands to know where Cooney is. And Harry protects Cooney because I think in that scene, he knows that in that state, Costa will murder Cooney and it won't be pretty. And he's almost like the mediator in this. And I know I've put in my notes that Harry, for me, is the only sane character in the movie out of the commanders. So you've got you know, Bartlett's trying to do it for manipulation purposes and his own gain. Yeah, yeah. Cooney's trying to save his skin and prove himself to his father. Costa's just broken, but Harry's the one that is the actual leader. But he's just doing it in a reserved manner. 
and he and he's the me, he's the mediator throughout the whole movie. Um, I would agree, that, definitely. And that scene is just incredible for Albert's. Yeah, that Al, Albert's that scene should have been nominated. Should have nominated him for a, a you know a third nomination at the Oscars. Um, and I've got a quote from from Eddie Albert talking about uh, the nuances of playing Cooney. So he said. I'd been in combat as a naval officer. I was commended for bravery in battle. Two or three days later, I wondered, was I brave or was I a coward just trying to get out of the action? Is there such thing as a coward? During action, the coward rationalises his actions. James Poe showed in the script that the coward does not exist in the moment. It's only outsiders who say this later who put this view on it. Aldrich approved of my result, my approach. He had sympathy for Cooney. He made Cooney understandable. He wasn't just a cheap villain. That was the moral base. Bob brought it out with a sense of compassion, of pity. But he's got to be killed. He's a danger. He rationalised himself out of responsibility. It's great writing. It's a great performance. Mm. It really, really is. And, and the you know the, the direction is there as well. Mm. I I like the the controlled nature of of Albert's breakdown in in character, mm. where he just. The, the the snap change of way regresses into his childhood yeah um and and delivers that um monologue from his father and then that contrasts really nicely with the you know you know the, the magnetism and the 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 sheer hatred that Palance has when he comes to the outdoor yeah, yeah. It, it's really good it is um but then like later on even when you get you, you still see that Cooney's got this real mean streak in him where he's oh yeah takes well, the my, my favorite scene the, is yeah. the cellar scene um yeah where i mean palance is great in that sequence mm. um as the as the dying uh as the dying man who is begging god for the strength to kill, to kill. yeah yeah it's such um, an amazing like oh it's just it's a, it's a yeah. great scene and but then again i think albert almost steals it um where he he sees Palance Costa on the floor trying to reach for the the, the pistol. Yeah. And he moves it away, kicks it away. And it's he laughs. Simple, He's laughing. Isn't it? it makes it's, you angry, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah like, and that's, that's the whole rage. thing about yeah. the, the beauty and the brilliance of how that character's written and also how uh, Albert plays it. Mm. Is you you fucking hate him. Yeah. He's really detestful. Like you really, really do hate him. Yeah. And you you can completely be on the same level as as Palance and the other characters. Like you can you can completely understand the hatred they all have for him. Because you felt for him up until then. You felt for him. He, you know, you could say he's a coward at the start, where you clearly get shown his his anxiety with the hands fumbling for the, at the radio. But like, oh, the switch is just so creamy perfect chef's well, kiss another scene oh. that stands out there is the bit where he's talking to to lee marvin um during the poker game and that's a great scene on its own mm. but um but you can you can really see the um the childlike mentality that he he harbors yeah where he's he's desperate for you know to explain why he wants that citation and how he's going to surprise his, his father dad. with it when he gets yeah. home um yeah. and it's also childlike and naive mm. and you can that's that's the bit where you go i can kind of feel for him because he's obviously been tormented yeah. and abused 
but then that mean streak comes out and you're like ah yeah so you are as soon as he starts laughing and kicking away that pistol in the cellar yeah yeah there's just there's there's no redemption from that no there's no redemption from that and the 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 scene where he's finally shot and they all pour around into him um which removes the blame from harry Mm. um although it's kind of implied at the end, isn't it? That he does tell command about what's been going on anyway. Yeah, heavily implied. Because he's because yeah. he's the conscious he's the he's yeah. the conscious consciousness. He's the well, sane one. He he's understands. the conscience yeah. of the film. He 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 under I think it's the whole thing of he knows that he can't he couldn't accuse Cooney of being a criminal and then not gob himself in for committing a crime. You know, he, and he knows he doesn't want to play the same politics as that that Marvin's oh, character is playing. Yeah. 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 And that's a, that's a great end of the film as well, where you've got, you know, Marvin trying to sweet talk, cool talk his way out of it, you know, knowing now that his his ticket to politics is dead and he can spin that however he wants because the guy's dead, mm-hmm. you know. It's just such an interesting, oh, you know, I'll get you a promotion, I'll make the worry cushy for you, Mr. Mister, yeah. you know, Harry and all that. It's very, it's swarthy, he just plays a swarthy bugger so well. Um He's, he- he plays it marvelously. It's a great yeah. cast, and there's some really good performances from those from those three. Yeah, they are. Uh, I got a little quote from Aldrich uh, about great. the film. Um, he says uh, it was quite a personal film for him. I think he mm. says my my main anti-war argument was not the usual war is hell, but the terribly corrupting influence that war can have on the most normal, average human beings and what terrible things it makes them capable of. Yeah, and I think that movie, this movie, does it very well. Because mm. the men are acting to the situation around them rather than being um, spurred on by the action, like many of these movies mm. that we've seen. This this one really felt like the men, they weren't above what was going on, but they, they weren't as bothered. Costa was the one fighting the war. Yeah. The, the others weren't. They were just doing it for themselves. And, and because of the war, like it's a very complex, nuanced movie in once in one thing and then on the other hand it's just this 50s box standard war movie when it <laughs> goes to the action it's a very well, interesting complex sort of movie we we said it earlier i mean it it's not it's a middling war movie but it's a great yeah. character piece yeah, like, yeah i think that's what i said that before we started recording it's not yeah. it's not like the, how it's not the greatest war movie it's not a terrible war movie it's no. sorry it's a very strong war movie but it's 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 a brilliant character film yeah it's it's like you know how Dirty Dozen is more of an ensemble adventure than an actual war film. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. It, I don't know that might upset it's, some it's people. It's that war genre it's, being. Uh, uh, um, it's a guns a of facility to a, to make these pictures about the human condition, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and I think that's where this one shines. Um, so should we move into final thoughts? Yeah, I think we're already there. I think we are, but it just for me, yeah, as we said all the way through. It, it it's a triumphant character study, amazing performances, you know, and it, it reminded me of uh, Twelve O'clock High and, and the Cruel Sea, where we, we really get to know these people through the the dialogue and the war is just happening, and these men are affected by it, you know, almost like appointment in London era uh, type stuff, where it's more about the people than any battle or any sort of action, um, and and that's I think that's down to James Poe taking this play and adapting it and. You still get the moments of Palance being a war hero, being a 
having his action yeah. moment for the for the people in the cinema but it isn't really about that they're just that's just costa's character yeah. you know that yeah. that's who he is that's just backing him up you know i even like the duality of the scene of a very small section where you've got um uh, cooney just wildly firing a thompson about um being like come on we'll take you and all that because he's just gone he's just cracked and you've got um costa with his arm underneath the tank having probably saved all of them um, by taking the tanks out. And it's just the thing of like, this, this crazed lunatic running around and you've got a man who's clearly just probably won a medal, you know, yeah. writhing yeah. in agony. It's just an amazing mm. sequence. And I think for me... It's a duality. A duality, yeah. And I think for me, it's Aldrich's best film. You know, I rate this over Dirty Dozen, over... Uh, I forget the name of the other one. So I don't like it. Too late, the hero. <laughs> Too late, the hero. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think this is his. Oh, best, it's definitely better than that. Yeah. His mm. best war work, anyway. It might not be his best movie overall, but it's mm. his best war work for me. Um, and I, I also appreciate it because it's an early look at PTSD and war fatigue. And I still yeah. think it's yeah, incredible true, yeah. how, how the film just received no Academy recommendations, but probably because of its um lack of help from the government maybe you know, maybe they leaned yeah. on the academy who knows um not saying that happens but you know you hear rumors sometimes but i thought I, before we go into your final thoughts Matt, i found a quote um from a 1974 book um called the war film by john kagan and he says um, in the history of the u.s war films attack is a great watershed the cold war themes of the brutality of war command levels social responsibility and the nature of the enemy in a shifting moral world are all transformed and transfigured. Attack is the first post-war film to connect with the new brutality of war with confusion, corruption, and incompetence of American leadership and American motives. In this sense, it is the first Cold War anti-war film. What do you think about that? Very interesting. I don't know whether I would say it was the first one, but I suppose, yeah, I can see how it could certainly fit into the into that bracket yeah, yeah. i just yeah. thought it was very interesting because i didn't i didn't see it as a cold war movie before you said that but then i kind of i saw no, understand it, it i think i agree i can see that but i think in 74 you're 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 writing just as the vietnam wars in its death throes mm. and seeing how the american army has gone from this thing that you can be proud of to something maybe that you aren't as proud of so i can see how you'd write that then Maybe not now with the, with the way I mean, things have gone, but it's you could say the same thing of um, of of many more as well. Yeah, very true. Which, and that is a Cold which, War, which is yeah. a Cold War movie, and that only came out the the following year. Yeah. Um. So they're very close together. Um. Interesting. Yeah. The the context of of when these films, uh, are, you know, are released and and created, is almost as interesting as the mm. the films themselves sometimes. Um, for me, I think, as we've already said, it's a brilliant character piece with those three leads giving some really great performances. And the material is wonderful. It's let down somewhat by the set pieces and the and the yeah. limits that are constraining the filming of those set pieces. Um, and the the lack of someone giving some direction to would well, they have done that? is showing in some places where you know the advance on Rommel and they've got that guy shouting five four three two and go and you can hear them shouting that in the town <laughs> yeah um, yeah it's a bit and that's yeah, a, bit, it's a bit 
a bit silly. Um, it's a bit like America football-y type playbooks type stuff for me. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a bit. And the sniper's terrible. He's stood in the in, in the frame <laughs> of that window. Um, and the guy that's supposed to be keeping an eye out for movement in the town, Ricks, completely misses him that, like three that, times. That's a, you can see how that would have worked on stage, though, as well. You know, it's, mm-hmm. that, that bit there is great, and I like how Costa just punches him for it. You're not yeah. expecting it. It, it, it. This is the things in the 50s. I don't think people were expecting of their military. You know, they weren't like this. It, it's yeah, no, it's putting true. it up for you to see. You know, war is hell, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know, it's not nice. You know, it's and I think sometimes these movies do glamorize it to some extent. Um, but this one yeah. doesn't. Yeah. It's a it, it's a really interesting and no, let me say that again. <clears throat> But I think at the very base of it, it's a really interesting character study that looks at corruption, cowardice, yeah. and the nature of, of combat and how hatred can grow in someone as well. Yeah, of course. I think yeah. I think the way that Costa's hatred grows as he sees more of his men die because of Cooney's ineptitude mm. uh, is, is, is very powerful as well. Yeah, because I can think it's the slow... The, the slow burn into insanity through it as mm-hmm. well. Like at the start, I think he could forgive it. And he, I think you just see this. He's resigned to it, isn't he? he talks he's resigned about, well, to it. He's like, there's oh, nothing we can do about it. do anything now. Yeah. Mm. And then by the time they get to the stone, he's like, no, that was a genuine. No, I'm going to frag him. I'm going to frag him. Yeah. yeah. And just the way he says the line, like, if you want to show, I said, if you want to see angry acting, reserved angry acting you with a bit repulsed a grenade go oh shove this down your throat and pull a pin mm-hmm. you don't need any swear words you don't need any real grit you just it's just it's just a man telling you what you're going to do what he's going to do to you and he's chilling you know Pal- i don't think palanza have been better personally for me mm-hmm. um it's just not it's just a very good really well written film a really good watch and it's it it rattles by as well like the, the, the pacing is fabulous as, as well it's um, it's really well directed. It's nicely shot. Mm. Um, there's some interesting editing, and it does a great job with what it's got. And it, the, I think the main strength of the film is Aldrich's direction and um, Birok's cinematography. Yeah, puts those performances center stage. Mm. Mm. It feels Kubrickian to me in places as well. Yeah, you did say that, didn't you? Yeah. When you were watching it, yeah. Like that cold open reminded me of like. Um, Oh Christ! I forget the name of it now. The one with Robert, not Robert Redford, the other one, <laughs> his dad. Uh, the sixties one, no, the no, the fifties one, the French. <laughs> you know, I fucking forget the name. Oh my God, Paths of Glory. That's it. I just had it on the tip of my tongue. You get the start of like a a, a war movie, and then it changes into something else. It really felt like that to me. Um. Mm. I don't know why. I just got that, that sort of... And some of the shots as well are quite moody. They're quite... Yeah, there's, there's definitely some moody camera work going on. Yeah, very. Like, you know, the, the crack in the wall, crack in the window. Yeah, there's a couple of shots yeah. like that, isn't there? Yeah, they think, I like the something about... I couldn't really work out what the cinematographer was trying to say, but there was something about the men stepping out of that comfy billet into a courtyard full of soldiers and tanks and jeeps. There was something about that like when they went out there, it was like it was, yeah, there was something very symbolic about that. I'd love to have talked to the cinematographer about what he was trying to do through visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, if you haven't seen Attack, I mean, it's well worth seeking out. I mean, it's on DVD for a couple of quid on eBay. You can rent it on YouTube if you want to. That's what we did. Because um, I don't think any of the streaming services have it to watch as part of your subscription over here because we had to rent no, it. No, none that I'm on, no. No, none that I'm yeah. on either. Um, but yeah, please do seek Attack out. And thank you yet again to our fabulous patrons for picking it. Um, we promise you, we promise you by the, by the end of the year or early next year, we will do a Chivalry and Swords movie. It will happen. Um, we've blocked out our Christmas. Um, we did Hornblower, Rob. We've done one. We've done one, yeah, yeah. Still have Flintlocks in it. There's gunpowder in that one as well. But <laughs> we were there's a lot of Chivalry to... and there's a lot of Swords. <laughs> we were clinging on to gunpowder for dear life in that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we will do one very soon. Um, and yeah, and coming up for Christmas time, we've got some fabulous stuff coming up, uh, which we won't tell you about just yet. We're not, just not in december just yet but all will become clear very very soon and do look out for our christmas t-shirts when they drop um, and we'll be doing a christmas fundraiser like we did last year and i'm sure we have a lot of goodies and things like that for you to look at and peruse um for we your will. christmas enjoyment so as always thanks for listening everybody you can find the pod on all the social media um apart from only fans and you can find the entirety of the back catalogue of the film of, of the film of the pod on fightingonfilm.com and if you have a foth binge starting for episode one do let us know be the first because no one's let us know yet no they haven't let us know maybe they're doing it in secret you know yeah i think they are yeah they are and and if you watch the movies in order of the release of the show i'd like to know as well because someone was talking to me one of our facebook followers was talking to me about that this week saying how that's like a curated list of, of war films to watch. I never thought it a bit like that's that. That's a nice before. idea. I like that. I mean, I, I guess that's what we're doing, really. Um, yeah, it is really, yeah. <laughs> it really, really is. And anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next week. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.